Welcome to this episode of the Education Endowment Foundation's podcast, Evidence into Action. This is the place where we get the opportunity to chat to experts about things we know are most important in our profession. My name's Caroline Bilton, and I am the EEF Content Specialist for Literacy. I'm currently seconded from my school, my primary school, as a school leader up in the northeast of England. And Alex and I are absolutely delighted to have three amazing guests for this podcast. Um, First of all, we're going to talk to Kate Nation, who is Professor in Experimental Psychology and Fellow of St. John's College. Um, We're then going to meet Haida Fayaz and Stella Jones, two incredible voices from our research school network. So Haida is based at St. Matthew's Research School and Stella at... Uh, Town End Research School. So, without any further ado, let's get going. So, we have a real privilege to introduce our first guest, Professor Kate Nation. Kate, could you introduce yourself and tell our listeners a little bit more about your background and, in particular, your interest in reading? Hi, Alex. Yeah, happy to do so, and thank you for inviting me to uh, to chat today. Um, So I'm Professor of Experimental Psychology at the University of Oxford, and uh, I'm a psychologist uh, trained from undergraduate days, but right from undergraduate days, and actually probably even before undergraduate days when I was at school, I was interested in the psychology of language, although at that time I didn't realise there was such a thing as the psychology of language, but I was interested in how it was and how it is we communicate with each other. And when I went to university and studied psychology, um, I discovered the psychology of language and that interest has stayed with me all these years afterwards. And it's sort of grown and mushroomed as research interests do and um, become sort of broader and narrower at the same time. So I think now I'm really focusing and got interests on how children, interested in how children learn to read and questions about reading more generally, even amongst skilled adults. But within reading, sort of quite a broad focus, I'm interested in how people deal with print, how they identify words, but also how children learn to and how we as adults construct meaning from language. So interested in both the sort of mechanistic aspects of reading, if you like, but also the more interpretive and figurative and comprehension aspects of, uh, of reading too, but all from a psychology background. That's great. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. I wonder if we could start, please, by asking, picking up on that point around reading comprehension and asking, you know, it's an amazing and seemingly natural act, but actually a really complex one. I wondered if you could talk to us, please, about why reading comprehension is so complicated and the implications for teachers in the classroom. Yeah, that's that's, a... A great question and a, and a big question. And yeah. I think maybe the starting point is to think that reading comprehension is complex because language comprehension is complex. Uh, language comes before, you know, spoken language comes before written language, both in our evolutionary history, but also our developmental history. Most of us learn to speak and comprehend uh, in the oral modality before we move to learn about um, text and writing. Um, But language itself is really complex. We have to hear and segment speech. We have to access vocabulary. We have to fathom the grammar and syntax about how words and sentences work together in order to convey meaning. And then when we turn to think about reading comprehension and written language, we've got all the difficulty of spoken language, or at least quite a lot of the difficulty of spoken language, but with an added dose of difficulty as well that really sort of sets reading comprehension apart, I think, from from spoken language comprehension, although clearly they're very highly correlated sets of um, ability. So, I mean, obviously the first thing that's different about reading to oral language is the is the printed word there's the code the letters on the page and how the letters on the page correspond to um, language and how we get from print to to meaning Um, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done there um, both you know research terms and thinking about implications for teaching and obviously a lot of work for the young kids as well to begin to uh, acquire the code and be able to decipher print but I think what we perhaps a less familiar with thinking about both in the sort of psychology research 
uh, of my world and perhaps also in, in, in classrooms is thinking about the other aspects and the other ways that written language is harder to comprehend than spoken language um, in, in some circumstances. And that's to do with written language being decontextualized, right? I mean, when we do spoken language as we're speaking now, um, we've got tone of voice, we've got eye contact, you know, we can interrupt each other and wave our arms around and so on. And these are all cues to help us understand what it is that we're saying to each other. I think, you know, teachers really understanding that sense of the of, of, of everything within language comprehension that supports their practice and then recognizing when that's all stripped away in the written word. I think that's such useful and important sort of advice around that. I wonder if I could ask you next, please, um, around the reading wars mm -hmm. and sort of how you would characterize them and what sort of challenges and um, difficulties that that sense has sort of raised for teachers. I don't know, maybe, maybe we should start on, 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 on a point of agreement that I think all of us that care about children's reading development would agree on, and that is we all know what skilled reading looks like, you know, and uh, we all know where we want children to end up, right? We all want, we want them to be able to uh, read whatever it is they want to read. Um, we want them to be able to read to learn and read, to read for pleasure and read for life. You know, we all agree that that's the, the end goal. But I, I guess the, the challenges that come with the reading wards and the, um, the frustrations really, I guess, have come from the reading wards being beset with um, putting things in opposition that don't need to be opposed. Um, and particularly in the early stages of learning to read, failing to take a sort of developmental perspective that's informed by the challenge or the pressure point on the system at that point in development. And I think going back to, you know, what we talked about in the previous point, the entry into reading comprehension has to be with identifying printed words. If children can't get from the printed word on the page, no amount of comprehension in the oral modality is going to help them right? if they can't do that basic word recognition. Um, so one element of the, the reading wars comes from this sort of um, tension or um, somewhat artificial opposition between thinking uh, that if one is teaching the sort of mechanics of reading and the word recognition stuff, somehow we're ignoring all this other important stuff to do with comprehension and to do with pleasure and enjoyment and, and so on. Of course, these things don't have to be separated in that in, in, in the diet and the portfolio of things that children do. But no amount of contextual experience and reading for pleasure is going to teach children how to identify words fluently and accurately. That has to be done by teaching children explicitly to identify the words so that the comprehension processes can then be um, adequately resourced and freed in order to do what they have to do, which is the very complex and difficult job of comprehending. You talked about that decoding and, and phonics yeah. you know, shouldn't be in opposition to reading comprehension. They're mm -hmm. complementary. Um, could, you, could you talk a little bit about, so we have the notion of dyslexia and word reading and, and, mm -hmm. and it's pretty popularised in our, our wider culture and parents understand and know what dyslexia might be and where the issues might lie. But then when we think about some pupils may experience reading comprehension difficulties a bit more narrowly. Um, is, there, is there a kind of something more that both teachers and parents need to understand about reading comprehension difficulties? I, I think so, yeah. I think, um, well, first of all, I think there needs to be an appreciation that there is such a thing as reading comprehension difficulties in that, uh, as you say, most people uh, have heard of dyslexia. Most people know somebody who's dyslexic and, and, and most um, teachers would be, you know, um, very easily able to spot a child um, who was struggling with word recognition and identifying words and with decoding, whether they had a dyslexic label or, or not. You know, the label that to some extent is uh, irrelevant because it's, it's easy to spot a child who's struggling and, and finds the decoding element difficult. Um, what's more difficult is to um, sometimes um, spot the difficulties with comprehension and think, uh, well, um, evidence suggests that they go under the radar. And these would be children who can read well for their age. So they've um, mastered sort of phonic knowledge and are able to read accurately and fluently for their age. 
But when you ask them questions about what they've read, their comprehension isn't where it ought to be, either relative to their peers or, or relative to their own level of word reading skill. Um, and these children exist. We know they exist because we can identify them using assessments in, in, in the classroom. And sometimes they go um, under the radar, as I say, because precisely because their word reading is good. And there can be this sort of assumption that if a child can read accurately and relatively fluently, then everything else follows, you know, the, you know, and, and that just isn't the case. It's certainly the case if children can't read accurately and fluently, then comprehension is going to be hindered. And most children who struggle with reading comprehension also struggle with word reading itself, you know, and they just find all aspects of reading difficult. Um, but it's certainly the case that some children can read well, but their comprehension is not so good. Um, and they tend to go unnoticed in the classroom, at least early, early, earlier in development. What, yeah. what have we indicated would support those children? Do we know what would support them? Yeah. That's the question. Yeah. yeah. I mean, again, that's 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 a big question. And I think it's a big question because comprehension, as we've already discussed, is, mm. is, is a big yeah topic and a big comprehension um, and one way I talk about this um, in, in one of my undergraduate lectures is to to you know invite some thoughts about you know the complexity of what we do when we when we comprehend text right so if we're good at reading comprehension there's a whole load of things that we're good at in order to be good at reading comprehension um, we can identify the words we know the meanings of words we've got good vocabulary we can put words together uh, in, in sentences, we can integrate ideas, we've got good background knowledge that we can draw on that allows us to make inferences and work out intended meaning, all that goes on in successful comprehension. Um, but then when you turn that the other way and say, this child hasn't, isn't very good at comprehending, um, why is that? Well, it could be because they struggle with all of those things, um, or it could be that they struggle with various combinations of those things, or it might be that they just struggle with one particular aspect of those things. So the, the, the notion of being poor at reading, uh, understanding text, we can identify those children, but just identify them, identifying them doesn't tell us what, why a particular individual might be struggling. It's a very sort of mixed, mixed bag, I, th I, I think because of the very nature of comprehension being complex, meaning that if it fails, it can go wrong for a whole variety of reasons. So there's not a straightforward answer to that question, yeah. I think. And um, it's certainly something where there needs to be a lot more research because um, something that uh, is, is a problem with the research literature at the moment is that we tend to have very small samples. And so it's really difficult within um, the, the small sample sizes that characterize our studies so far to identify anything that looks like different profiles, you know, um, and it might be because those profiles don't really exist when we look carefully enough, or it might be that we just don't have enough uh, statistical power in our samples to identify them. So I think that's a real priority for future work to get the sample sizes up to a much, um, uh, a much more buoyant uh, number. So, so there's a few things there then. So, mm -hmm more and better research um it is is one thing to take forward i think for for me for teachers there's th this understanding of complexity yeah. and recognizing diagnostic assessment will be really important yeah. um, being sensitive to individuals and not making assumptions you know labels like dyslexia and poor comprehension sometimes can be used but not mm -hmm. have a you know a, a shared language and, and mm -hmm. really get into that complexity yeah and, yeah and, Finally, almost this notion of teachers and teacher knowledge and teacher support and training stands out for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think something I didn't perhaps say as clearly as I ought to, given its importance in your previous answer, in my previous answer, and it also relates to what you've just invited now, is, is, is about language and spoken language. Because although it's difficult to identify anything that looks like pure, poor comprehender types or subtypes or profiles, what does seem to characterise the majority of experimental work and, and research work on the poor comprehended children. So these are children who read well, but don't understand what they've read very well, is that it isn't particularly a reading problem in that it's also uh, manifested in spoken language comprehension and in listening comprehension. And I think that's a really important message for, for teachers, right? In the sense that, you know, that 
the difficulty that the children have isn't modality specific. It isn't just to do with written words. It might be manifest more strongly in written language because written language is more challenging in some ways than spoken language. But we can normally see some sort of difficulties in, in spoken language as well. And that you know, points to the need to work on spoken language as well as yeah. written language. And indeed, there is some research evidence to suggest that working um, with children's spoken language uh, comprehension and narrative and storytelling, um, improving that leads and, and vocabulary, um, improving those uh, children's skills in those areas can generalize and lead to improvements in reading comprehension. That's that's really helpful. Uh, my last question feels um, like a bit of a cheat, really, because we've talked, you talked so much about the complexity of reading comprehension completely appropriately. Um, but also, on another level, we have to meet teachers where they are and, and mm-hmm. support them with, you know, accessible understanding and build that understanding and support. So can I ask for uh, perhaps a simplification, but, you know, is there one insight you want every teacher to know about the science of reading? Mm. I'm probably going to start off with one with one thing, and it will very very quickly become uh, deeply embedded. Um, I think it would be about appreciating that language is a system, and it has components, and that those can be sort of separated, but they also have to work together, and having that sort of knowledge transfer of almost sort of linguistics or psycholinguistics and just understanding more about language um, and written language as, as, as well as spoken language. So I think this is so central to uh, so many aspects of development. Clearly understanding about language and how language works is critical for reading as we touched on um, earlier, but it's also critical to self-regulation and behavior and lots and lots of other things that are so critical for uh, success in the classroom and 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 beyond. Thank you. I, I think it's a really apt ending, and and just to say thank you for your time, and actually thank you for adding to that the research base that it's helped us understand the kind of the systematic nature of of language development and reading development. Right. Thank you very much, Alex. Thanks. Thank you. Oh, that that was great, Caroline. I kind of I followed Kate's writing and research for quite a number of years now and the likes of the ending the reading wars really seminal um but just just great to hear that kind of complexity distilled by an expert uh, i think it just made me just recognize again you know i'm out of the classroom now but just my feeling and constant feeling of not quite feeling prepared enough for that complexity and not really understanding all of it and and searching out answers and trying to turn that into practice. So I think there's a real benefit in in hearing from from experts like Kate, but it just made me think about that kind of those little gaps that I worry about. I just felt really reassured by that, that the reason it's complex and the reason we're we're struggling and, and, and grappling with so many different aspects of reading is it's not that straightforward process that we might want it to that we want it to be because ultimately we want to get every child there we want them to read and to enjoy reading but that pathway to it is is complex and I think just hearing that and hearing the the different parts of it the aspects of it that really have highlighted all of that complexity was reassuring challenging obviously you know I know I've got so much and you always feel you've got so much to learn about the teaching of reading but a recognition of it is reassuring I think it's why for me the likes of Scarborough's reading rope and you have simple view reading but how these models are really important because they take that complexity you know and they distill it and sometimes it's on a powerpoint slide and that's not you know, not sufficient, of course, but you've got to create some sort of model to then grapple with and and take, you know, with the reading rope, you take each thread, you take the yeah. vocabulary thread, you take the decoding yeah. thread, and you yeah. try and build some understanding of that. Now, we need to hear from um, our experts, um, Stella and Hyder as well. So let, let's move on. Brilliant. 
Okay, so Haida, thank you so much for being here with us on the podcast today. It's brilliant to have you. Um, I wonder if you could start, please, by introducing yourself, give us a bit about you and perhaps about your school and perhaps some of the work that you do to support teachers with the teaching of, of reading, please. Thank you, Caroline. It's so lovely to be here. So thank you for having me. Um, so my name's Haida. I teach a wonderful class of Year 5 children at St Matthew's Primary, Primary School in Neutrals in Birmingham. Um, I'm geography lead and lead practitioner and I'm also probably the role that I'm most proud of is um, an ELE for the research school here. Um, and we are a one form entry primary school in Neutrals, Birmingham, we're in the heart of Birmingham. And we are um, small but mighty. We have quite a high percentage of pupil premium children. Um, but just echoing what Sonia Thompson had said in a previous podcast, we don't see our children as deficit. We absolutely pull everything we can from their rich cultural heritage that they have at home. Um, and we learn from them. So it's like that reciprocal approach to education. Um, so that's just about me. It's brilliant and I get that sense in every time I talk to you about any sort of any literacy that sense of real commitment to the children you teach and an understanding of their needs and the incredible sort of things that they bring to school as well so thank you so much for that Heidi. And Heidi you, you have reminded me of that of the first podcast we did and, and we included Sonia Thompson um, and she talked brilliantly about the work of your school and about kind of school improvement and it did strike me that was it about funds of knowledge that the children bring and I know that as a school you think really hard about how you approach reading you know the, every primary school does but I think you've got a brilliantly deliberate way of tackling it and uh, it's really really helpful so my first question is a little bit about that really and and the influences on, on the approaches to reading so my question would be what what would you say is a significant influence on your practice when it comes to teaching reading? So I suppose the most significant influence has been that understanding, if I teach explicitly the strategies around reading comprehension, then my children will read for pleasure and read for progress in a more motivated way. Um, so teaching those strategies explicitly, and it moved away from that mindset of, I'm gonna constantly test my children with content domain questions. Um, because that's not reading, that's not learning to read, that's checking comprehension skills um, and it's not teaching the children how to approach a text. And what do I do when this text is challenging and um, how do I go about reading? What skills do I need to bring to the text so that I can understand it? Because at St Matthews, the texts that we choose for our children are challenging um, and very ambitious. So we've got to make sure that we explicitly teach those strategies um, in order for them to independently apply. So I suppose explicitly teaching those strategies means that um, I've got to have a handle as a, as a teacher on the texts that I want my children to read. So also becoming a teacher that reads. Um, I have to read, I have to devour children's literature quicker than my children do so that I'm at, um, I'm at a good place to be able to give them really exciting non-fiction newspaper articles, um, whatever that I think is a really good challenge for them so that they are able then to learn from that and apply those strategies. So, I mean, one of the things you talked about having a year five class, and, and we know that a reality can be that kind of looming um, force of the year six sats and, and, and doing a lot of practice of, of SATS type reading comprehension questions. What's your perspective on that? And, and how do you approach that? There's the balance, isn't there, of, of the challenge of knowing you want people to do brilliantly in those examinations, but also ensuring they really develop as readers and they're you know, knowledgeable and skilled readers. So I suppose it's about making sure that I'm implicitly going through those kind of SATS style Formula, formulate questions when we are approaching the challenging text and um, orally asking those to the, to the children as we are working through to check that they are understanding. Um, but I think those key comprehension strategies of prediction, summarising, clarifying, monitoring, if those are taught explicitly and the children have apt opportunity to practice those, then the 
content domains of retrieval and inference will come. And um, it's something we at St. Matthews, we believe that inference, you need to have that vocabulary and retrieval in order to infer. So actually there's no point me testing a load of content domain questions when you, when I haven't actually taught you how to navigate. They, they, do, they, they do just become part of your repertoire, don't they, Heidi? The more you interact with those SATs, the more you understand them, the more you can just weave them in in a way that feels very natural to the children and builds their sense, their confidence when they're going to, to, to be answering questions. So Heidi, you've talked there about high quality text types. I wonder if you could perhaps just talk to us a little bit more about the steps that you undertake in terms of making those those choices what you would define as high quality how you make those decisions around those really important choices in the classroom so I suppose we we always think about text potential so um are there key themes running through this book that are challenging for my children and those are key themes such as friendship loss um journey but it's do they and do they relate to themselves so do they does the text relate to the children does the text relate to any other text we've chosen um so that's the first kind of point of call really point of reference is what are the key themes running through this book and then i suppose moving from those key themes is do i have to do i have to teach any background knowledge do i have to activate it for the children um, does it link to any other area of the curriculum that I know the children will already have hooks in their schema? Um, and how do I activate that background knowledge? And then moving into, um, I suppose, the in, in some texts, there will be like a non-linear sequence. So I'm going to have to introduce my children to what that looks like. I'm going to have to visually represent that so that they can see it as well to relieve that like overload, cognitive overload. Um, and then if there's any key vocabulary, so looking at that tier two vocabulary that holds the meaning to the passage or the text, whatever we're studying, is that something that they are going to transfer across into their writing, into their speech, into their other areas of the curriculum? So it's, I suppose it's, I would say it's the theme yeah. Is there is there good is there good background knowledge that I can provide my children? So we're reading Tamburlaine's Elephants at the moment, and we've our background knowledge is all about the Mongol tribe and the expansion of the empire. And again, that links to what we have looked at in history. So it's it, it's about forming and forging those links. And if the text doesn't actually naturally have those, then maybe a different text is more suitable for you in your school, in your context. That was a real pleasure, Caroline, to hear from Haida. I think one of the things that stood out to me among, amongst many was this focus on Haida and, and what St. Matthews do um, in terms of developing reading comprehension is they think really, really hard about all the opportunities of, of explicit teaching. So that's explicit teaching of reading comprehension strategies, explicitly linking up the curriculum and, and the nonfiction reading with the fiction reading and, and thinking, you know, for a given text, what knowledge needs to be retrieved, reactivated, what will be new? And, and it, that, you know, that kind of, sometimes you hear about school, school reading culture and you can hear kind of amorphous terms about reading comprehension. But actually, I really like that real explicit breakdown of they think about their curriculum and think about reading comprehension and the complexity of background knowledge and, and reading comprehension strategies. And I'm sure yeah. if we talked about reading development, decoding and all those other threads yeah. of the reading rope, there was just a great explicitness for me. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. That sense that you model and scaffold those strategies explicitly, that that happens within the English lesson, but then all of those opportunities just just taken and right across the curriculum, wherever it be, whether it be with Aristotle or in a geography text or in an art text, you know, in art week, taking those opportunities because the more we saturate the children in that, that, that explicit teaching, the more likely they are just to then enact them independently, make that part of how they instinctively interact with texts. 
that that absolutely struck me too. It's interesting as well, you know, how how with your curriculum it's bespoke in in the manner of where you're located. So St Matthews is is rooted in Birmingham, and you pick, you know, you pick your topics, you pick your foundation subject kind of domains to to meet the local needs of, of your pupils and their families and to bring their funds of knowledge to the curriculum. And, and what struck me is that there are some general opportunities, some great texts, some, some really useful um, topics that everyone seems to do, you know, your great fire of London, you know, type of thing. Yeah. But I think what also stood out, if we were to really unpick their curriculum, is that it's bespoke and... There's a real depth of knowledge and subject expertise in in St. Matthews, where they really engage with subject communities, as well as really focusing high dimension about reading of children's literature and the the knowledge that needs to underpin making good choices. So Mm -hmm. it stood out for me how they make lots of choices for their children and families. And with their children in mind. So there's such connection, isn't there? There is that commitment to the children. I know this will land well. I'm going to read this text with my class. I know it fits well within the curriculum, but there's such a wealth of of text there, aren't there, for teachers to draw on, to use. Having that broad knowledge, being able to identify a a high-quality, complex text isn't enough. It has to be within the context of, of your class, that, that context, understanding what it is that will work and and ignite that desire to comprehend as well. Yeah, that was great to hear from Haida. And, and next we're going to hear from Stella Jones. So, um, you know, without further ado, let's move over. Stella, thanks so much for being with us for the podcast. I wonder if you could start, please, by introducing yourself to the listeners, just give a bit of a sense of your work across um, to support reading across um, the Wise Academy schools, please. Hi, so my name is Stella Jones, um, and this is my 20th year now in the business of all things teaching, learning, and leadership. Um, all the time has been spent within the primary sector. Most of my career has been based in London, but more recently I moved up to the Northeast. And now, as you said, I work for Wise Academies, which is a multi-academy trust made up of 12 schools, um, all primary. From so We've got some schools in Sunderland, some in Northumberland, um, and one in Newcastle. So we've got schools in very different contexts, some in really rural settings and some in inner city settings. And my current role is that of Director of Teaching and Learning, and I have responsibility for English, although the majority of this um, last year during lockdown, I've been working to develop a wider curriculum offer that kind of has disciplinary reading, oracy and vocabulary at its heart. I'm also, um, for two days a week, the Director of Townend Associate Research School, and I work in partnership with Shotton Hall Research School as part of the Research School Network, which aims to sort of disseminate the EF's findings in order to support teachers, senior leaders to use evidence um, to achieve the maximum possible benefits for young people. And the sort of main mission is to close that disadvantage gap. Thanks, Stella. It pretty much sounds like a busy week, I think. <laughs> um, so my first question is about, um, you talk about 20 years of experience, I think, uh, not too dissimilar to myself. Caroline's got even more stripes uh, on her badge. Uh, and during that time, you'll have developed practices and kind of around reading comprehension. Uh, can you give us an example of where you think evidence has influenced the teaching, that classroom practice around reading comprehension? Um, well, in 2019, I worked with a colleague to design and resource a model for teaching reading across the 12 schools in my trust. Um, And it was ready to launch and we implemented it in September of 2019. And that model is very much evidence-based, but it also draws a lot on the context of our schools, like both of our collective experiences and the lessons learned from both our time in the classroom um, and our time out of the classroom. And this has subsequently involved delivering sort of ongoing CPD to all stakeholders and then like a programme of follow-on support, which has been quite intense seeing as we have the 12 schools. 
Um, and it was important for us as a trust to have that shared approach to teaching reading effectively and efficiently, not only across our schools, but within each of the schools. Um, the model sort of is picked up when children have completed the phonics program. So that's why we really needed it to be evidence-based. And um, so usually by year two and builds from the phonics into fluency with explicit teaching of the reading comprehension. And that is all evidence-based too. This shared approach has given us, you know, a shared understanding and language. And it has been a really great platform slash excuse for us to get our English leaders together to discuss all things reading, to share the evidence, to share good practice, make adaptations, you know, learn from one another. That's brilliant. Thanks. So could we dig in a little bit more into the detail of that, Stella? Would that be OK and find out a bit more about how that looks in the classroom for teachers in, in your schools? Of course, yeah. So our reading model is centred around whole class reading um, with discussion and the sharing of high quality books and the books are read in their entirety. We find our children respond much better to a whole book. They become enthused and like, really invest in it. The book also provides the stimuli for our writing. So text choice to us has been fundamental. Um, quality engaging texts are chosen for lots and lots of different reasons, such as opportunities to enhance social and emotional learning. They might foster inclusivity. They improve background knowledge, but mainly the excellent literature that will motivate, provoke talk and hook the children in. Sometimes the texts link to the wider curriculum, but we definitely don't ever want to compromise the quality or richness of a text just to make you know, a few tenuous links. Um, and children always have physical copies of the books, at least one between two. Yeah. The model is fortnightly-ish, um, and it's a daily 30-minute lesson, which ensures that fluency, comprehension strategies, and the tackling and unpicking of a range of question types are explicitly taught during its course. Fluency <laughs> has been one of our trust priorities, and it is that bridge between word recognition and comprehension. Um, fluency is sometimes confused as being how quickly a child can read. Um, rate is important, but fluency is also about prosody, accuracy, and that all-important reading for meaning. So one of the fluency activities in our cycle is Reader's Theatre, which is really great for engaging and motivating children. It also requires clear communication, both speaking and listening between the children as they decide how to perform their section. Um, children are supported with speaking stems should they be needed and they give them um, ways to challenge each other, to clarify, to probe and to build on what their partners said. It develops both the exploratory talk and, president, and pres presentational talk. It's also a great way to gauge children's understanding of the text through how they perform it. So if they put unnecessary emphasis or expression or use volume inappropriately, you can see immediately that they haven't quite comprehended the piece. We also incorporate things like repeated reading and guided oral reading instruction as, as those tools to improve fluency. And we also explicitly teach reading comprehension and they're modeled, um, the strategies are modeled and explicitly taught as part of the cycle. This isn't done sort of, you know, Monday retrieval, Tuesday summarizing and so on. The skills are interwoven and are employed as and when opportunities arise in the book and depending on which the children need to practice. In this part, the adult reads the text aloud as that model of fluency and its poignant planned points. The text is analysed through purposeful modelling, discussion and questioning. This also means that children who might ordinarily struggle to decode the aspirational text still have that chance and that right to accept yeah. it. These children are often excellent comprehenders of oral language and we can still grow this because language comprehension isn't just wholly dependent on word recognition these children will get that somewhere else in the day. Um, there are of course opportunities built in for children to read both independently and with a partner. You know, I love what you're talking about there. So, so many different aspects of what you're talking about there, but when you talk about reading aloud to children and all of the opportunities to everything that you talked about there, all of those opportunities to engage in those texts, to talk about books, to talk and develop language, develop fluency, the, the modelling. Why is that so important for your children, Stella? Um, they often don't get books read aloud to them at home, unfortunately, some children. And 
it's true the older they get the less sort of adults read yeah. them at home yeah so we do think that it's very important that they get that model of fluency yeah so it's something that you would see for all of your children in primary school and not something that you would keep just for the younger children not at all and we do have designated times where um the teachers share a different book with the children. So we have our one book where all of our English comes from. And then there's a book that the, the teachers share, which is their reading for pleasure book. And the children have the choice, you know, how to choose which book they have, but they do get a lot of reading too. It's really important. It's interesting, Caroline. I'm seeing that from a secondary school perspective, I'm seeing that trend increase as well, that kind of yeah. reading to and with peoples. And and I think in the past, there's been that assumption that, you know, children read in their heads and, and they'll make all those decisions and pick good texts for themselves. But I think there's a greater recognition with older um, students, actually. And I can't help think about my own two children. I've got a little boy, Noah, in year five and, and my daughter's in year seven. We still read to them every night, read with them. And I don't do that in some sort of intervention or some sort of English teacher kind of um, extra. It just feels like the most natural thing. But I think I think there's a hopefully a growing conception about that that modelling of fluency and that reading with children for as long as possible and, and really enshrining it in the school week and, and making it really high quality. Absolutely. And I think just taking every aspect that you mentioned there, Stella, that you were able to develop through those opportunities used to be a bit of a like guilty pleasure of mine you know I'm going to read to the children and does it look as though I'm wasting some time well no look, look at what you've just emphasized there around all of those opportunities to talk to develop fluency everything there just yeah it's so uplifting to hear and that opportunity providing such equity for children as you say who perhaps wouldn't be able to decode that high quality text independently but it's brought to life with them through the teachers that you're working with. Could you talk to us finally about what your priorities are please in terms of reading for your children? A long-term focus of priority is non-fiction for us. It's developing that fluency, comprehension and stamina when tackling non-fiction fiction pieces, shifting the emphasis from learning to read to reading to learn. Nonfiction tends to be what lets children down when it comes to the SATs. Yeah. And it's crucial when we think about that transition to secondary and getting our children um, secondary ready to meet those texts that they read in science, history, geography. So that's been a priority. And nonfiction is really complex. Children have to navigate the multiple ways in which information is presented and organized, such as the diagrams, maps, charts, graphic organizers, photographs. They have to wade through the subject specific genres um, and then that more complex tier three vocabulary. So our focuses are to develop fluency in nonfiction. We need to consider how often children hear their teacher modeling expert prosody when reading nonfiction. Do teachers yeah. use their performance reading voice for nonfiction? Do they exaggerate the formal standard English when they read? They read like a public service announcer, a newsreader, or like a David Attenborough? Or do they, you know, or indeed are we exposing them to enough nonfiction full stop? So, and then vocabulary is never going to go away. That's always going to be on the radar. So we need to reinforce and remind children of the toolkit of clarifying strategies that they have in their arsenal that they can employ when they meet unfamiliar words, such as their knowledge of morphology, word families, and so on. And we'll continue to explicitly teach and do all of the retrieval practice around that subject specific vocabulary. What we want to do is really encourage the use of actual nonfiction books, not just something from yeah. um, certain websites uh, and quality pieces of writing that are not necessarily aimed specifically at children. And then finally, that developing that background knowledge, doing this by teaching children to summarise as they read the nonfiction text as they go along, sort of circling, underlining keywords, breaking the text down into chunks and writing makeshift subheadings when, when there aren't any. If children summarise along the way, they're going to pay closer attention and spend more time thinking about those ideas in the text than those who just read it. And as sort of Willingham says, memory is the residue of thought. The thinking process 
helps them to hopefully know more and remember more and giving them that all important background knowledge, which will hopefully boost their reading comprehension. So along with teaching oracy and lots of nonfiction reading, we hope that by prioritizing that reading to learn across the curriculum, we might be able to level the playing field for some of our children. That sounds like such a, a, a vital, you know, you use that phrase that I use consistently as a year six teacher, children secondary ready, secondary ready, but this year more than ever getting the, the, the exact detail of what it is we need to prioritise, but I can see in that thinking real, yeah, careful awareness of where they'll be going and, uh, you know, as they go into secondary. That's great. Thank you. So great to hear from Stella there, Alex. Um, what really stood out for me as Stella talked about the work with the children across the Northeast and schools, you know, right across the Northeast and some really very deprived areas. I know them, you know, very well. The thing that stood out for me was how, how they work to support the children to, to really understand those reading comprehension strategies, how it's broken down, how it's made manageable and achievable. So just that simple point, I know how difficult kids find it to summarize and how absolutely essential it is. If, you, if you're not carrying a summary away from, from a story you've read, a book you've read, then you can't go back and enjoy it and, and, and you know, have all of those opportunities to comprehend it. So that simple strategy, breaking it down, looking for headings, those points that children can just hook into, take, practice it would be modeled and scaffolded modeled and scaffolded and then that, you know I can almost feel that sense in the classroom that Stella would achieve when you're able to step back and watch the children as you've read to them or they've read themselves and, and without needing anything at all start that that whole process breaking it down for themselves um, it really just excited me to hear that that support given to make something as tricky as I know it is accessible and you know so that opportunity for success just built into it. What, what stood out for me and kind of based on my background with with older students and, and particularly with working in secondary schools and thinking about those teachers of history and science and mathematics where reading comprehension and kind of just isn't a known known it's kind of it's a thing that's mentioned but sometimes the understanding is a little bit superficial uh, and what stood out for me was both the explicitness about being strategic you know and Stella talks about non-fiction texts particularly and about as pupils get older and then move through key stage two and particularly that leap into secondary school and, and all the different subject domains that are often new and challenging with their own reading demands it stood out to me that that was a priority for Stella across the schools, but also there was something really deliberate about, okay, focusing on information text, nonfiction, focusing really deliberately on building background knowledge and not, not just picking books, you know, with a degree of randomness, trying to think really carefully about strategically building up that background knowledge and then breaking the text down at the same time and, and, and connecting them up again. Uh, and, and it felt like the, another important, point about that fluency still being important and still you know often for much longer than we assume and think and I think Stella mentioned that point about moving from learning to read to reading to learn and I think actually that reading to learn never stops but actually sometimes it does stop in school because teachers aren't quite confident about what it looks like um, as, as children you know, develop and particularly in secondary school often teachers who don't have an expertise in, in reading and writing and literacy uh, don't quite seize those opportunities and it's often disadvantaged people who don't have that kind of exposure to background knowledge in, in some other contexts that it starts to be more pronounced and more of a problem for their reading. So, so yeah, there was, lo there was lots in that discussion. Um, what would you say in terms of just synthesizing and thinking about, you know, hearing from Kate Nation, um, from Oxford, hearing from Haida and hearing from Stella? You know, the thing that has, has kind of struck me and, and, and has, has sort of been in every thought, every discussion was that initial point that Kate made that it's complex. You know, teaching reading is comp. Nobody ever told me that back, 
Yeah, a long time ago when I was training to be a teacher. Nobody ever said it's really complicated. It was just, you're a teacher, you're a primary teacher, you'll know how to do it almost by some kind of osmosis. I would, by virtue of the fact I was with the children, they would learn to read. And, and, and you know, really actually understanding that we need to, under, to know that complex process and break it down. Uh, it's complicated, but what I want more than anything is for teachers to, to, to be able to navigate the pathways through that complexity, to understand that it can be broken down. And that's kind of, you know, we took Kate's initial point and I think did you sort of navigate some routes through. We saw lots of, of, of examples in Haida's practice, in Stella's practice that did make it something that we can bring to life in the classroom, where we can really, really make a difference. We can model and scaffold. I come back to that because I know how important it is. I've got to constantly almost saturate the children in those opportunities, in everything we read, build up that, those reading comprehension strategies, and then the joy of, of watching them sort of enacted by the children. So I was struck by the complexity and the, 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 the sort of, not solutions because there aren't solutions, but, but the, the opportunities that, that Haida and Stella are taking to support teachers to understand how we can, we can navigate that, how we can, we can take hold of it, take ownership and bring these opportunities to life for the children. Oh, that's great. And I think uh, it's a rather seamless to say that hopefully part of that complexity is mediated by the literacy guidance reports that we've produced at the EF. So preparing for literacy for young children, the key stage one update very recently, which you were involved yeah. in and the imminent key stage two update. And, and I had the privilege of being involved in the secondary literacy guidance report, which has that focus on reading and reading comprehension being right at the heart of that. So hopefully they they help as important tools. Um, and, and just to end there, hopefully it's been interesting for teachers of all different stripes and experience and phases to, to grapple with reading comprehension. Uh, and do sus subscribe to the podcast if um, having these kind of really um, geeky chats about what the finer aspects of teaching and learning um, is your thing. Thank you for coming along. Thank, big thank you to our guests. Do subscribe um, and join our next podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you.